Children, uh, four years old through fourth grade, you're dismissed to your classes. And as they're going, you guys can turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. And I'm going to get rid of this mic before I drop it. And For those of you who have been, uh, I'm sure, faithfully studying the front of our bulletins every week, um, you will notice the picture has changed, and it changed last week. And um, we are talking about now how the gospel was not just in Jerusalem, but now it's spreading into Samaria. And we're going to see how it spreads, and we're going to learn a lot of different lessons uh, from the ways that God is at work and the things we can learn from Him as well. But before we do that, I want to take a moment, and I want you to think about a time in your life where God laid on your heart for you to say something to somebody else that literally changed their path, or a time where someone said something to you that changed the way you're thinking about something that literally directed you on a totally different path. What I mean by that is, I'll give you an example, this happened in my own life. It was the start of my junior year in high school. Um, when someone would come to me, the, the junior high, the counselors that would come to the juniors and say, so what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And you sit there and go, I, I don't know. Um, I would say, I don't know. And then I'd give you a list of things I knew I wasn't going to do. Um, and so one of the things that I knew for a fact that I was not going to do, and I literally would say this to people, I was not going to ever stand up in front of anyone and give a talk. I hated public speaking. The second thing I was never going to do was read anything in public because I struggled incredibly with dyslexia. And so reading things was just good luck. Um, I was the kid who sat there and we were reading Shakespeare our senior year, literally prayed that I would not be called on, you know, to read. And I could tell you that's the things I wasn't going to do. And so as a junior in high school, just struggling with getting by in school, it was the fall. And every fall we'd have a big soccer game with the rival that we would play against, and then afterwards the school would get together and have a bonfire, and they'd ask someone to speak at this bonfire, a short little challenge, and then we'd just do other stuff around there. And my Bible teacher, whose name was Dan Rott, came to me and said, Tim, you're going to speak at this. And I looked at him and was like, wait a minute, you didn't even ask. You just told me that I was going to speak at this thing. And I went home, um, and I said to my parents, I was told I was speaking at this thing, you know, like, come to my rescue here. And my dad, in his, uh, just stopped and looked at me and said, so what are you going to talk about? I'm like, that's not what I was expecting you to do. You were supposed to come and talk about how this teacher is so disrespectful and not asking me, you know, all these other things. But my dad said, what are we going to talk about? And then in his encouraging way, as my father, he looked at me and said, well, at least it's going to be in the dark, right? So <laughs> you won't have a whole lot of people. And if you put your back to the fire, most people won't be able to see if you're sweating or not. They'll just think it's the fire. And... Hopefully there'll be a couple of crackles and no one will hear what you're saying and just, you know, it'll, you'll get through it. And I remember that night came and went. I got home and my dad said, so how'd it go? And I was like, well, it went all right. And he said, well, at least you didn't die. You know, you survived, right? So you can do this. And what my dad was trying to teach me and even what my Bible teacher is trying to teach me, there's some hard things in life that you have to do. But just because it's hard in life doesn't mean you don't do it. And also the Bible teacher was teaching me, the Lord had laid on his heart to say, Tim, you're going to speak. And he didn't even give me an option. He just said, you're doing this. And I'm just thankful that God had put people in my path to direct me in that way. And we, if you can learn a lesson from my own life, as I've been learning these lessons, I think we can also learn lessons from the people in this text here about how they interacted and how they 
functioned and what we can learn from their lives. So let's hop into our passage here. Acts chapter 8, verse 9. You have a great word there at the front of it in the ESV translation I'll be using, the conjunction, the word but. And when you have a conjunction, that means there's something before it that is connecting to the situation you have here. And so verses 1 through 8, Philip is in Samaria and things are going great for Philip. You want to look back there in your text, you'll see people are getting saved, power and signs are working well through Philip. And then we get, but there was a man named Simon. All right, this is not one of the great ways if you're being introduced into a text, you don't want it to be, but then there was a guy named Simon. So let's figure out a couple of things about Simon. Now, church history uh, and some ancient history gives us that Simon, his name was Simon Magus, and he was, and many many people believe he may have been the leader of a a heresy called Gnosticism. Um, Gnosticism, again, is one of those great things we all kind of, we hear it, but we go, what is Gnosticism? Uh, Gnosticism is the belief that the body is inherently so evil and corrupt and the spirit is good, and so you can literally sin with the body and not affect the spirit. And so if you literally, you could have an affair with the body, but with the spirit, you still be okay, and your spirit's going to go to heaven, the body just falls off here down on earth. So obviously, they're going to have a hard time with the great union of what? Jesus, right? So they're going to struggle with the whole, what is this truly God and truly man, Jesus, and they're going to go down a crazy path. And we see this heresy being talked about in 1 John. So Simon, uh, starting off already, is not something that um, we want to be well known for as a heresy. So Simon here, let's, let's read what the text says. Uh, he, pre- he practiced magic. He practiced magic in the city, and what do we see here in verse 9? People were amazed by it. When he would do with the magic, people would be, wow, this is exciting, this is amazing. I'm sure without a doubt, like anybody, if you're amazing a whole crowd, pride is going to start to swell up in you. And we see this pride as the text goes on. And he is saying, it says the text is saying that he himself was somebody great. The people weren't saying it yet. He's saying it. He's doing the magic in front of them. People are amazed, and he says, I'm pretty great. All right, and we see this following, and so we see pride starting to creep in here in Simon's life. And we see in verse 10, they're all paying attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. He said he's great. People are starting to buy into the fact that he's pretty special, to the point where they're saying he's got the power of God and he's great. And we see in verse 11, And this went on for a long time. You see that? And they paid attention to him for a long time because they were amazed by his magic. Now, I want to be real clear, real quick. If we're not careful, we think magic. He's, what is he, pulling a rabbit out of a hat? Is he doing a card trick? Is he saying, hey, look, here's a quarter behind your ear? And everybody's like, whoa, you know, and he's the great musician, you know, abracadabra. Are we talking about things like that? No, 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 we're not. The reason why we're not is because notice the text gives us attention. The power of Philip shows up, and we got the power of Simon. This is a satanic situation here. And one of the ways we know that these two dueling powers are at play is a simple story in the Bible we can look back on. Remember when Moses went before Pharaoh with his staff, and he threw it down, and the staff turned into a snake, and he could pick it back up, and it wasn't. God was showing his small little power there, yet to see the massive power in the plagues. But we saw a small little way there, and there were two Egyptian magicians that threw their staffs down as well, a copycat, but what do we know about the staff of Moses? It destroyed the staffs, those snakes of the two magicians, showing who has the greater power. 
as well as watch the text as well here. Notice the moment Philip shows up and is doing signs and wonders, Simon follows along and believes. But it's a belief with some parentheses we're going to see here. Because notice here in verse 13, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing the signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. What is amazing, Philip? The gospel message of repentance? No, the signs and wonders that Philip is doing. It's almost like, whoa, this is a power I don't have. This is a power I don't know. This is a power even greater than mine. I better follow this show here, even though it's not a show, but you understand, I better follow this show because it compares nothing to mine. It's almost I'm getting swept along with the crowd here. And so what we see here is very interesting. We see Philip kind of almost joining the movement, as you would call it. I would say, I mean, yeah, Philip, Simon. Simon joining the movement here. It would almost, in my mind, alludes back to the fact, remember when Jesus was healing the five, I mean, healing, and he was feeding the 5,000 and all those, and people were following him for the show and the food? And immediately when he started preaching the gospel, it started to push people away when they started realizing, wait a minute, this is repentance, this is a change of life, I'll just keep taking the food and the and watching the miracles. But in verse 14, there's a pause here in the text. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard what was going on in Samaria, what do they do? Peter and John go to investigate. They go to check out what's happening here in Samaria. Because are the Samaritans really getting saved? I mean, Samaritans? The ones who we would literally, remember when we were going from one part of Jerusalem, I mean, one part of Israel to the other, you'd literally go around Samaria. And remember Jesus, when he was here on earth, went into Samaria, all right? And the people are like, why are you talking to a Samaritan woman? What's going on here? And all of these questions that would go on, because Samaritans, again, were a Jewish person and a Gentile person would have a child and they would have a Samaritan, half Jew, half Gentile person. And they were not looked highly on. Even remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who helps out the Jew that's laying on the ground? The Samaritan? Really? So Peter and John are going, is this really happening in Samaria? When they get there, though, here's what they find. They find a group of people that have been saved, have been baptized, but the Holy Spirit hasn't come to them yet. All right, and you go, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean, that's a different than what we're noticing in other places, because so far we've noticed this. In the book of Acts, we have to ask ourselves questions. Whenever you study a text, you have to ask yourself a question. Is this a normal way of things going, or is this a describing an event? I'll give you a really easy one that we know it's a describing an event. Moses and the burning bush is describing an event where God is speaking to Moses and calling him to be a, the leader of the Israelite nation, Okay. When the Lord called me to be a pastor, I did not go out, check out the euonymus bush in my front yard and wait for it to catch on fire, and then the Lord speak through that. All right, that, That's describing the event there. That's not the normal way that God speaks through a burning bush. So when we come to the book of Acts, we have to ask ourselves, when we see something that's a little unique, is this a normal flow of events, or is this describing an event? And so we have to handle this thing of, the falling of the Holy Spirit on people. So let's go back in our, in our minds to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, 
we have a group of about 120 people praying that God would give them the Holy Spirit, which He had promised. The Holy Spirit comes, and the building shake, a great wind comes in, and tongues of fire land on their head, and they receive the Holy Spirit. One of the signs of receiving the Holy Spirit was they started speaking in languages that they didn't understand, yet there were hearers who understood it, and they were sharing the gospel message in an unknown language of the person who was speaking, yet someone could understand it. Literally, you could record the languages because we see them recorded there. That was a sign that the Holy Spirit had come. Now, notice even as we go through in Acts 3 and 4 and 5, there's literally thousands of people getting saved, but no, as we would call it, pouring of the Spirit on those people. So we have the descriptive event of how the Jews there were receiving the Spirit. We get now to Acts chapter 8, and we have where the Samaritans are receiving the Holy Spirit. And you go, why is this? Now, if it was a normal event, we would have the Samaritans praying, shaking of the building, wind, flames would land on them. But no, it's not. It's another descriptive event describing how the Samaritans receive the Spirit. How do the Samaritans receive the Spirit here? Peter and John come and they pray and they lay their hands on them. And the text does not give us any external sign that was shown. And so we have a group of followers who were believers, baptized, and then laying on the hands to receive the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 10 is when the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. When the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit there, you can check this out, Peter is literally talking to them. The Holy Spirit falls on the place. There are those who are in that room that are saved and have not been baptized. There are those in that room that are saved and baptized, and they all receive the Holy Spirit at the same time. And so what I'm trying to explain here is showing that each one of these is not a normative event, because if it was a normative event, the same exact things would happen each time. We're seeing different events. And so what are we trying to see here? Well, I believe very strongly Acts chapter 2 was when the Holy Spirit came to the Jews and we heard different languages, what is God telling them? This is a multilingual international gospel. What do we see here in Acts 8? We see the Holy Spirit pouring out on the Samaritans. And the, literally, God saying to two of the apostles, go and see that the Samaritans had the same spirit as you. And we see then in Acts chapter 10, Peter going again and seeing that even the Gentiles are getting the same spirit because what is he teaching? I'm the same God for all of them. The same Holy Spirit is for all of them. Two, three descriptive events of how the Holy Spirit is being poured out. If you want to talk more about that, we can, but I just want to give us a little situation of how we look at the book of Acts, how, what lens we should look at the book of Acts through. So now, as they would say, back on the ranch, we have Simon here. And we're looking here, and notice what happens once Simon sees the power of Peter and John. He doesn't say, can I buy the Holy Spirit, which would be wrong in and of itself, but what does he actually ask for? I want to buy that power, which is already showing his heart is not in the right place. And then Peter, even the rebuke of Peter is a very, as we would even use it, it has damning terms to it. May your money perish with you. Because of your hard-heartedness. Because your heart is not in the right place. Because if it was in the right place, you wouldn't have been asking this. Tim's summary of the text. 
And Peter calls Simon to repent, which is at the heart of the gospel. He's saying, repent, turn from this sin. Your eyes have been blinded to this, turn from it. And it's interesting, one of the reasons why I believe that, um, in, at least in my understanding of the text, I don't believe Simon is saved, because even in that turn to repent, what does Simon say? You pray for me. He doesn't even ask, he doesn't even turn and cry out to God for that. He pawns it off, in Tim's understanding of this passage, he's pawning it back off on Peter, saying, you do this for me. And so we see a wrong heart, we see pride blinding Simon's eyes to the things of the gospel here. And so he's unable to even understand his own need, and he's unable to understand what his greatest need is, which is the Holy Spirit to open his eyes to show his need of Christ, not following the greatest power. The lesson, again, we can learn is pride is blinding him to the truth in his real need in Simon's life. Now, let's look at the Ethiopian eunuch. What lessons can we learn from his life? The Ethiopian eunuch, first of all, is going to be a Gentile that's converted, converted to Judaism. The word there would be a proselytite, someone who went from, was a Gentile, sees the things of Judaism and decides this is the true way, and he follows them. And we see this playing out here, and there's some things we can learn from his life. First, we know he was a worshiper of God because he's actually got on his chariot and went all the way to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. So we see that he's seeking the truth, and and let's look at the ways he's seeking the truth. In verse 28, you see him sitting in a chariot reading the prophet Isaiah. It wasn't just good enough to hear it. He actually had to buy, and most likely, the, the, uh, the scroll of Isaiah is very expensive. This, remember, things are being hand copied. So he had to in order to get the scroll of Isaiah, which is a long book nonetheless, all right, he had the whole copy of Isaiah, most likely this whole scroll here, which is going to be a pricely sum. And so we see him having a copy of Scripture. We see him reading the Scripture. We see in verse 31, asking questions from Philip, how can I understand unless someone guides me? Meaning, I'm not leaving almost until I figure this out attitude. We see in verse 34 as well, him asking good questions. Is this prophet talking about him or somebody else? We see even as well as the Ethiopian eunuch, as God starts to open his eyes through the prophet um, Philip here, through Philip, as God opens his eyes through this, we see him saying, I need to change. Something needs to happen here. And he's even saying, what, what prevents me from being baptized? And then doesn't even let Philip answer. He just stops a chariot and says, there's a lot of water here. Let's get this thing done. All right, because he was seeking after the truth. And one of the reasons we know that he was seeking after the truth is because God had started to open his eyes to that there's more to the story than just what he was seeing in front of them at the temple. What's this prophet talking about? God is working in him. And as we start to seek the truth, as God opens our eyes in the process of salvation, as we start to seek the truth, what does God do? Bring people into our lives to explain it to us. He uses His Word. He uses us to explain to others their need of their Savior. And notice the Ethiopian eunuch's response, Stephen Simon's response. Because the Ethiopian eunuch had a lot of money. The Ethiopian eunuch has got all of the power as well, but how did they use their power? One was humbly submitting himself, The other one was trying to gain more power. The lesson we can learn, even from the Ethiopian eunuch's life, because it's very interesting, even to this day, 
Ethiopia is one of the areas where Christianity is quite strong in the African continent. We can learn from the Ethiopian eunuch that those who earnestly seek after Christ, God in His sovereignty will show you the truth. As those who seek after Christ, God will give you the truth. The last, the life of Philip. What are the lessons we can learn from the life of Philip? Well, we're going to learn from Philip clearly what does it mean to be Spirit-led. If you want to know how does this Holy Spirit lead someone, what does it mean to be someone who follows the Spirit? All right, let's put ourselves in Philip's shoes for a moment. Beginning of the chapter, things are going really good in Samaria. Signs and wonders are going through. Even when something intense comes up with Simon trying to buy the power of the Holy Spirit, what does God in His sovereignty bring along? Peter and John to help him out, right? And we're seeing traction going quite well. And now what does God tell him? In verse 20, Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to a road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. It's a desert place. Really? The desert? Is this really where you want to send me? I mean, if I'm sitting there going, wait a minute, desert places, not a lot of people. Things are going well here. Did you really mean that, God? Did you really want to send me to a desert place? Because think how many people I can share the gospel to here. No, but the Holy Spirit said, your time's done there. You need to go here. So in order to be led by the Spirit, the first thing we see of Philip here, Philip needs to be open to the Spirit's leading. A person who is led by the Spirit, they are open to the Spirit's leading. Wherever the Spirit calls them to go, even if it doesn't make any earthly sense, we follow where the Spirit is leading. Because we see this, it's interesting in verse 30 here, the chariot is at a spot that Philip actually has to run to it. So whether it's moving or something else is going on there, it's enough that Philip can't just go walk up to it. He's got to actually track down this chariot, all right? In our own minds, as you know, the, so, all right, Lord, I've made it to the spot where you want me to go, and now there's a chariot that's moving away from me. Really? That, well, can I wait for the next one? I mean, like, really that one? You know, that one I'd have to track down. But Philip runs after it. He's willing to go where God has called him to. The second thing of what it means and what we can learn from Philip is Philip is bold. He's open to the Spirit's leading, and he is bold. And we know that he is bold is because God tells him to go talk to the guy in the chariot, and it's a complete and utter stranger to Philip. Philip doesn't know this guy. It's a stranger, and he doesn't even know what God is about to do. He's going up to a chariot that most likely, if he's a well-to-do guy, has other people around it. Really, that chariot there, and I'm just kind of Philip the deacon, that, you know, a, a nobody really. I was a somebody kind of in Samaria, but now we're in this desert path here, and I've got to go up to a complete other stranger. And so as he gets up there, we see the Ethiopian eunuch reading. And what does Philip do? Ask him a question. Do you understand what you're reading? He boldly goes up and just starts a conversation with him. And in this conversation, we see the third point. So first, you need to be open to the Spirit. Second, Philip is bold. And the third, he needs to be ready and prepared. If we're going to be used by the Spirit, we need to be ready and prepared because Philip takes the passage of Isaiah, starting in that passage, and taking that passage and points others to Christ. 
takes the Old Testament and points this man to who Jesus is. Remember, the New Testament wasn't written. It was literally being written. He takes the Old Testament and he says, this is where Jesus is found through it all. Notice what he doesn't do, though. Philip doesn't get up there and he goes, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch says, no, how can I understand unless someone teaches him? And he goes, well, listen, next time you're in Israel, next time you're in Jerusalem, let me give you the address of Peter and John because, I mean, they can really tell you about Jesus because they literally were with him for three years. Or Philip didn't say, hey, here's a really cool YouTube video that will explain it all because don't ask me to explain it. I'll give you a quick clip because there's a better teacher out there. He didn't say, hey, why don't you, like, why don't the two of us come together and we'll go to church and we'll talk to the local pastor there and he can explain you the gospel? Because all I'm a, is a bobblehead and goes, yeah, whatever he said. And you're like, so is it actually what you believe? Or are you just really good at redirecting people? Philip was ready and prepared to point others to Christ. What we see here in Philip's life is mass evangelism. We also see personal evangelism being done. Because what we see at the end, which is an interesting passage of Scripture, uh, that we just say this is what the Bible says. The moment Philip baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch, he's gone somewhere else. All right, And the Ethiopian doesn't see him after that. I am not sure what happened there. But I do know Philip was there. Then he was over here witnessing. Because we do know about Philip in Acts 21, verse 8. Philip is labeled there as Philip the Evangelist. Because wherever he went, it seems that he was sharing about Christ. And the thing that I want to draw your attention to here is this. We had a divine appointment that was given Philip, this Ethiopian eunuch. There was a divine appointment that was given to him, and he shared the gospel. Now, I want to draw your attention real quick to uh, verse 14 in the text, because there's something else here that I want to point out. Notice in verse 14 that Peter and John, when they hear about what's going on in Samaria, leave Jerusalem and go right there to Samaria. Notice how they leave in verse 25. And when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, this is Peter and John, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. We see a heart change of Peter and John. They're going to investigate. Are these people really getting saved? They have an encounter with God where he uses them to lay the Holy Spirit on these people, and immediately, what is their heart attitude? Completely different, because now on their way home, they're sharing the gospel with all the Samaritan villages they seem to be going through. And their heart was changed. We see Philip here sharing the gospel wherever he goes. What about the divine appointments in your own life that the Lord lays on your heart? One of the things the Lord has really been pounding on me lately is how many times people will come up and they'll share a struggle with me, and I'll pat them on the back and I'll say, I'll be praying for you. And they walk away. And sometimes I remember to pray for them, sometimes I don't. What would it look like, since we believe that God is sovereign, he brought that person up, and how about when someone shares something, you say, why don't we pray right now? I mean, that's a phenomenal, I mean, imagine that, stopping and actually praying right now. 
You know, we share, we have, we spend time with our neighbors and we say, it was great. The other day the neighbor shared something with me and I said, I'll be praying for you. And there was like, what a witness. How about the, even the greater witnesses stand there and pray with them? Yeah, we sit there and go, oh, I, don't, I don't know. What if Philip was like, first of all, he's an Ethiopian. I don't even know what he's doing, right? That divine appointment that God gave him. Do we miss those in our own lives? When you're driving home and you see your neighbor outside, is, could that not be a divine appointment? Oh, well, it looks like they're reading something. Well, good thing Philip didn't go, hey, look like the guy was reading something. I don't want to interact with him. Or they may be listening to something. Well, I don't know. I don't want to interact with I might, you know, be rude or, you know, he may not want to talk to me. Allison was at a uh, conference where this lady was talking about hospitality. And she was talking about how she could show hospitality in the ebb and flow of your neighborhood. And so when Alice and I were talking about it, she asked me, she said, you know, Tim, I was thinking one of the things that would be cool is I have, there's about, there's several guys on my block, a bunch of widowers. And she's like, well, why don't you ask them, go, go to breakfast or something with them? I was like, yeah, I could do that. And so I started thinking about, I should probably ask these guys to go to breakfast. That's kind of, you know, that can't be, that's not that hard, right? And as I was thinking about it, I was patting myself on the back of what a wonderful, phenomenal idea, Tim. You know, this is so great. And then as I was thinking about it, you know, as the ivory tower was getting higher in Tim's life about how super spiritual I must be, I started thinking about, all right, there's three of them. Oh, what about that guy? He's kind of awkward. The guy I wasn't going to invite, you know, when she said, and then... I mean, he's socially awkward. would make the whole time awkward because I know who the Lord is laying on my heart, right, to share the gospel with. I know because, you know, I know better who the ones that need the gospel, right? Because if I heard that he had gone to church, I would most likely go, what? It was because he wanted to feel better about himself, right? Do I on purposely in my own mind go, oh, they don't need the gospel, this person does? If I heard that the Lord is at work somewhere, would I sit there and go, really? You know, in the American culture we live in, we can come, become very, very, very quick to share the gospel with a group of people. But don't get me started. Just try to call a spade a spade on the Islamic world. Those people hate us. Oh, we only share the gospel with those who like us, right? The ones who are their religion has people trying to blow us up. I don't know if they need the gospel. Those are hard, hard things we live in. It's the same thing in this text here too. Samaritans getting saved? Really? That neighbor, Lord? The guy really close to me is really friendly. I like him. He actually gave me something the other day for free. But not that guy over there that's just going to use me. Really, Lord? And I'm tell I haven't taken anybody to breakfast yet. It is a struggle right now in my own heart of going, what does that look like? What are the divine appointments that God is laying in your life, in your heart, that you are rationalizing away? Because what we can learn from Philip is when we're open to the Spirit's leading, he's going to use us to point others to Christ. 
But when we're closed and we say, Lord, I know where you're at work in this world, we're not open to the Spirit's leading and we will miss opportunities to proclaim the truth of Him to a lost and dying world. Because what we're going to see, the texts go on, we're going to see the most unlikely of men proclaim the gospel truth. And we'll see it in chapter 9. This guy? I mean, that guy is going to get saved? He doesn't even like us. And he's going to get saved, this Saul character. Really? So who are the people in your life that God is laying on your heart right now? Then who's the person right now that you're going, I don't know about that guy. Just think about that for a moment. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, help us to be a people that are open to your Spirit's leading wherever you call us. Forgive us for the times when we say, Lord, we've got this figured out. Fit into our little box, fit into our little category. Help us to be wise. Help us to be people that love you with our whole heart. Give us eyes to see where you're at work in this world, and may we quickly go there. May we follow your Spirit's leading, whatever the cost. This life that we live here is a vapor, but what we do here on earth counts for all of eternity. So may we submit our lives to you, saying, Lord, use me wherever you lead. In your son's powerful name we pray. Amen. You could please stand. Matthew chapter 18, I'll read the Great Commission. What we've been all called to. Because in closing, I want to leave you with this point. The thing that will destroy the church faster than anything else is fear. We're scared to death to do something. But notice what Jesus leaves. Verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to you. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. And all God's people said, amen. I release you to a week of looking for the divine appointments God has given you.